As I stated a little bit earlier, today is the first day of a new week. It's also the first day of a new month. It's also the first day of a new year. It's also the first day of the remaining days of our lives. The word first seemed to be impressed upon my mind somewhat this week. I thought about this verse that I've quoted many times in my ministry. It's in the book of 1 John 4, 19, where the Apostle John said, We love him because, and here's the cause for it. It's the only cause. We love him because he first loved us. Now, we use the word first a lot in everyday conversation. We have a tendency to think about first things a lot, I think. I bet every one of you here can probably think of the first car that you ever owned. Maybe the first house you ever lived in. Maybe your first boyfriend. Your first girlfriend. We use that word first a lot in conversation, do we not? The word first means original. It means beginning. It can mean rank and dignity. It can mean something of greater importance than everything else that's under consideration. Or sometimes it can just mean the first thing in a series of things. And the Bible uses that word first in most every way I've just mentioned to you here. But I was thinking about 1 John 4.19. We love him because he first loved us. Now John writes a lot about love. He wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and Revelation. Love is a dominant subject and theme in every one of those books. He also, far above any other gospel writer, made reference to the word world. And I suppose the most familiar verse in all the Bible, without question, is John chapter 3, verse 16, where the Lord Jesus Christ made a statement to a man named Nicodemus. Most people don't even know who the Lord said this to, but it's important that you know this. He spoke it to a Jew. Nicodemus was a Jew. He was a Pharisee. He was a chief ruler among the Pharisees. And the Lord had had a pretty lengthy conversation with him, which the Lord introduced to him and taught him some things about the new birth. And he came down to verse 16, and he said to Nicodemus, For God so loved the world. Now Nicodemus, being a typical Jew, a typical mentality, knew that the Jewish people, that they had been formed of God and created of God, and been a special people under God for centuries, going way back to the days of Genesis 12 when God called a man by the name of Abram out of the land of the earth of Chaldees. And from Abram, the nation of Israel was formed, that's Abraham, of course, formed and created. And the Jewish people in general just had the concept and the idea that they were God's chosen people, and that was it. But the Lord is letting Nicodemus know, no, Nicodemus, I got a people that go beyond the bounds of the Jewish people. I got a people out of every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. And for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Now, the word world is used in the Gospel of John 80 times. 80 times. 79 more times than just John 3.16. That word world has a number of definitions attached to it. Sometimes it just has reference to the system out here in humanity that's in opposition to the Lord Jesus Christ and righteous principles. Sometimes it has reference to the earth in which we live here. 
Sometimes it has reference to the ungodly only. You go to the fifth chapter of 1 John, and you'll find where the Apostle John says, and the whole world, <laughs> you know, lieth in wickedness. And he's not talking about himself and the Lord's people here. He's talking about the world apart from God's children. One time they came to the Lord Jesus Christ, and they said the whole world has gone after him. Well, the one saying that hadn't gone after him. So they were not part of that world that went after him. But usually when people see the word world, they just automatically think it's talking about the entire human race of all humanity. Very seldom it is. Sometimes, but not, not that many times. So I got looking at 1 John. Do you know that the word love is used in 1 John, five little chapters, you can read in less than 15 minutes, is used 33 times. 33 times the word love is used in 1 John. The word world is used in 1 John 23 times. So John, who wrote John 3.16, has a lot to say about love and a world over here in 1 John that most people don't even know anything about. I love reading some of the expressions about God's love in 1 John. 1 John 3.1, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Isn't that wonderful? That we should be just called the sons of God. And he says, and now are ye sons. It does not yet appear what we shall be. We know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. In 1 John 3, 14, he says, Marvel not if the world hate you, for we know we've passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. In 1 John, he's going to say a lot about God's love toward his people, toward us, but he's going to say a number of things about the love that we should have toward one another. And the love we should have toward one another is based upon the example of God's love for us. Take a look at verse 16 in chapter 3. Hereby we perceive the love of God because God laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. If he laid down his life for us, then we should do the same thing toward our brothers and sisters in Christ, right? And then in 1 John 4, 7, he says, Herein is love. All right? Here in his love, he said, Let us love one another, for love is of God. He that loveth knoweth God and is born of God. But he that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. That, that's a lot of important information in that. Beloved, let us love one another. He says, For God is love. That's where God comes from. I mean, excuse me, that's where love comes from. It comes from God, whose love personified. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. He that loveth is born of God. Now notice this, and knoweth God. There is no love for God in the heart of an unregenerated person. You can talk to them all day about the love of God, and when you're through, they won't love God any more than they did before you ever started talking to them. There's no love of God in the heart of an unregenerated individual. John's not talking about unregenerated people. He's talking about regenerated people. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. Love comes from God. He that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. But he that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, for God sent his Son to die for us that we might live through him. And then he's going to define love again. He says, for he, in, herein is love, not that we loved him. 
When you read something like that, you know what's happening here? The Holy Spirit of God anticipated your thinking and your reaction to something he just got through saying, so he's going to make sure you know that's not right. Here in his love, not that we loved him. (laughs) That is not here in his love. Here in his love, not that we loved him, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That means he became the satisfaction to pay the ransom price that was necessary for us to be redeemed. That's what it boils down to. 1 John 2, 1. Little children, these things we write unto you that you sin not. That's the admonition. Do not sin. But if any man sin. <laughs> but if any man sin, he said. Now, little children, these things are writing unto you that you sin not. But if any man sin, let him know we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins. The word propitiation means satisfaction. Jesus Christ is a satisfaction for our sins. You know, in the book of Jeremiah, we quote this oftentimes, Jeremiah 31, 3. He said, Behold, I have loved you with an everlasting love, therefore with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Now remember the text of 1 John 4, 19 is, we love him because he first loved us. Not because we loved him and then asked him to love us, We would never do that. The unregenerated heart would never believe that, think that, or feel that. We love him because, here's because, he first loved us. Here's the word first. He first loved us. I thought about this verse in the book of Hosea, Old Testament. Hosea 11, verse 4. He said, I drew them with the cords of a man... I drew them with the bands of love. Now, he's talking primarily here about his affection, his love toward the nation of Israel, but certainly this is a picture of his love for his people. I drew them with the cords of love. It reminds me of John 6, when the Lord Jesus Christ said, No man can come to me except the Father which sent me. Draw him, and I'll raise him up again at the last day. We love him because he first loved us. First things first, right? Now, to take the Word of God. You're going to read the Word of God, and you need to believe it is the Word of God. You need to believe this is God's Word, God's message to His children that He had pinned down for us for our benefit. As the acronym Bible, I like to think about it, you know, basic instruction before leaving earth. But we notice over here in Second Peter 1 and 20, he says, knowing this first, Here's the first thing you need to know. Knowing this first, that no scripture is any private interpretation. Hadley means no personal explanation. It simply means that the scriptures was not written independently of God. They weren't written separate and apart from God. The next verse explains that. All right, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scriptures is of any private interpretation. He says, for holy men of old spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And a word picture for this expression, moved by the Holy Ghost, is like a ship on a sea and the wind is moving it along. You get that picture in your mind? A ship on the sea which the wind is just moving it along. Holy men of God. What kind of men? Holy men. God didn't use wicked men. He used holy men. Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Now, that's the first thing that you're to know. Now, one of the definitions, again, of the word first 
is origin or beginning. And so when you start reading the Bible, which I trust you will do tomorrow, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. There's where you got to start. You got to have a starting point. There's not a better starting point than that one. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. There's your first. There was a time when there was no sun, moon, stars, earth, or man in existence. But there came a time, according to the pleasure of God, he spoke the world into existence. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. You're not here because of some spontaneous explosion. I cannot believe how ignorance can, take, can grab such a great hold in the, in the lives of God's people. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Believe that by faith. Hebrews 11, 1 and 2 says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. By faith we believe that the worlds, plural, the worlds, plural, were framed by the word of God. Now, when you, this is one of the reasons the book of Genesis is perhaps, in some sense, the most important book of the Bible. And the reason for it is you've got to have a good foundation for anything that you do in life. You're going to build a building, the foundation, the most important part. It determines the size, the shape, and the strength of the building that's going to go on that foundation. Psalms 127 in which they say Solomon was a human writer of this. Except the Lord build the house. They labor in vain at building. Except the Lord keep the city. The watchman waketh, but in vain. So what do we have in the book of Genesis? Look at all the first in the book of Genesis. Creation. The first chapter gives us details of creation. You got in the first day. You got in the first night. You got in the first time that the sun shined and the moon gave her her light. Uh, as a reflection from the sun, of course, and the, and the stars that God put into, into heaven. And how he used creation in the Bible to teach us so many things about our relationship with him. The Bible teaches us that the Lord's people are as numerous as the sand of the seashore and the stars in heaven. And all the stars and the light they give, they have no light of their own. The moon has no uh, ability to produce light of its own. The moon, the light of the moon, the stars are reflections of the light of the sun. And we have no light within our own selves by nature. What light we have has been given unto us by the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the first man. We have the only man in the Word of God that lived without sin for a while. Outside the Lord Jesus Christ, of course. Adam actually lived in this world without sin for a while till he transgressed God's law. We have the first man. We have the first woman. And we're told some things about this man and woman in other portions of Scripture. Come to 1 Timothy 2.13. And the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy and says, For Adam was first formed, and then Eve. And he said, Eve was in the transgression, uh, but Adam was not deceived. Adam was not deceived when he took of the, tree, of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He was not deceived. He knew very well what God told him. He could do and he should not do. He could leave every tree in the garden of Eden except one that's tree of knowledge of good and evil. He said, the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Adam knew that, understood that, and transgressed God's law. And that's a very important principle in Scripture because what happened when that happened? Romans 5, 12 tells us. Wherefore, by one man, that's Adam, sin came into the world, and death by sin, and death passed upon all men, and here's an all that covers all humanity. No exceptions. Death passed upon all men, for all have sinned, and plunged man under the law of sin and death, making him vile, corrupt. But the main word I want to use here is dead. 
And somebody that is dead has no ability whatsoever to respond to anything. That's why if you're talking to an unregenerate person, I don't care how blessed you would be to, to lay everything out in front of him. It wouldn't make any difference because he's dead in trespass and sin and he cannot be stimulated by what you say. First man, first woman, first transgression. Here's the origin of sin. Here's where sin first came into the picture. And it's been here ever since. We have the first marriage. What can we learn about this that's so important? It's just a very brief account. But let's just notice here. God said it's not good for man to be alone. Okay, God said that. Adam didn't. God did. He said, I'm going to make him a helpmate, an aid, an assistant. So he caused a deep sleep to come upon Adam. And he took a rib right out of his side, not out of his foot, not out of his head, but right out of his side. Because the woman he's going to make out of this rib is not to be over the man, under the man, be right here next to the heart of man. How did Adam respond? He says, For this cause shall a man leave his mother and father, and shall cleave to his wife, and these twain shall become one flesh. He said that because God took a rib from his side, and he made a woman, and then he done what? He brought the woman to the man. If you've ever seen a case where God was in the arrangement of marriage, this is it. <laughs> but it sets the example for us. Young folks, wh whoever, you should never enter into marriage without a lot of prayer to God that God would be in the arrangement. That God would bring you into contact with somebody who's godly and righteous, and would have the same goals as you have, a desire to worship God in spirit and in truth, you pray to God for that arrangement, that God might be in it. That's what we learned from the very first marriage that's found in the book of Genesis. God brought her to him. <laughs> you want God to bring your spouse to you, you see, in that regard. Now, we have some instruction in the Word of God, such as the book of Proverbs, chapter 31, says, who can find a virtuous woman? Her price is far above ruby. If you're going to find something, you've got to look for it. So who are you looking for? You're looking for a virtuous woman, young men. That's what you're looking for. And young ladies, you need to be looking for the same thing in the man. We learn all this from just a very few scriptures, don't we? And notice how Adam said, for this cause shall a man forsake his mother and father. If you're not willing to forsake your mother and father, you're not married to get married shall forsake his mother and father. It does not mean you abandon them. It means you know you're starting a new family on your own and you need to be on your own two feet and be old enough, responsible enough, and well off enough to be able to provide for you and your wife. Because I can assure you it's more expensive to take care of two than it is one. For this cause, a man shall leave his mother and father, shall cleave. That word cleave literally like, means like super glue. You're so glued together, you're so tied together, you're so bound together that the only thing that could possibly separate you in life is death itself. That's why we use that expression, death do you part. It's amazing the reasons that people give for leaving. You won't find any of those in the Word of God. So God sets the example, this is the first man, first woman, first marriage who give birth to the first child which is Cain, and then along came Abel. Then we have the first murder, first death. 
as Cain slays Abel. We have the beginning of the nation of Israel given to us in Hebrews, excuse me, Genesis chapter 12. I already briefly mentioned when God calls a man in the name of Abram, the land there are the Chaldees, tell him to go to a land I will show thee. He says, in thee and thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. That seed is the Lord Jesus Christ. But Abraham is a hundred years of age and Sarah is 90 and they still have no child together. But God didn't know the promise. God knew what he was doing. And God enabled a man whose body was dead and the deadness of a woman's womb to bring forth a child by the name of Isaac. A miraculous, supernatural event that took place. We learn all this in the book of Genesis. When you read and study Genesis, you're laying a foundation for the rest of the Bible to rest upon. That's why it's such an important book. And there's a lot more first we could perhaps look into along these lines here. All the way through the Bible, it's important for us to understand the importance of the word first. When it comes to discipleship. Over here in Luke chapter 9, verse 57, we have a man coming to the Lord Jesus Christ, and he says, I'll follow thee whithersoever thou goest. How the Lord responded? The Lord said, The fox have holes, the birds have nests, but the Son of Man hath no place to lay his head. If you're going to follow me, it's going to be some hard sledding. That's what he's telling. He says, I don't have it as good as the fox have it. I don't have it as good as the birds have it. The fox got the holes, the birds got the nest, but the son of man, he don't even have a place to lay his head. And then another man came. He says, I'll follow you, but first. Now, here's how man uses the word first. But first, he says, let me go and bury my father. You know what Christ said to him? He said, let the dead bury the dead but come and follow me and preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ of the kingdom. And then another one comes, and the Lord said, follow me. He said, okay, but first, let me go and bid farewell to them at home. If there's one thing that man excels in, it's making excuses. He excels in that. He specializes in it. Oh, I'll follow you, all right, Lord, but I've got some other things I've got to do first. I got to go bury my father. And that's a reasonable thing. His father died. But the Lord said, let the dead bury the dead. If he's not living anymore, let somebody else take care of it. You go preach the gospel, something more important. And then, you know, the third case again. Let me go and bid them farewell, which at home, well, that's a nice thing to do. That's a courteous thing to do. I guess that's good manners. You want to go bid them farewell. You know how many times in my lifetime people didn't come to church because they had children or company that come uh, and spend the weekend and brought no church clothes with them knowing that their parents were dedicated church members? I'm going to tell you this. My mother and daddy never stayed home one time because we had company. They brought church clothes and went with us or they stayed there and waited. We went to church and come back home. You say, Brother Lawrence, that's pretty tough. I'm just telling you what the Lord said. You take it up with the Lord. Don't take it up with me. I'm just a messenger. <laughs> but let's go a little further here. Let's go to Luke chapter 14. Oh, let me, I, I didn't tell you what the Lord said in response to that. He said, he that put his hands to the plow and looketh back is not fit for the kingdom of heaven. You know, when you plow, I know this by experience growing up on farm, one thing or another. If you want to plow a straight line, you better not look back. 
I, I remember this, even when I was a little, a little league baseball coach. Uh, not only did I have to coach, I had to prepare the field. <laughs> Couldn't even get enough volunteers to go out there and lay out the field, the stripes, you know, the lines. And I remember one time pushing that, uh, that cart with a line in it down the first baseline, and I thought I was doing such a marvelous job, I just wanted to look back and see how, what good a, a job I was doing, how straight a line I was, uh, uh, you know, leaving behind. And when I did, that was great. And I went on, looked back, and I looked, and I saw exactly where I looked back, went like that. He that put his hands to the plow and looketh back is not fit for the kingdom of God. John 14, excuse me, Luke 14. It starts off with saying there was a man who made a big supper and invited many to come to the supper. But they all with one consent began to make excuse. And the first one said, well, I bought five yoke of oxen. I got to go prove them. I got to go try them out. What man would buy five yoke of oxen without trying them out first? Like buying a car without a test drive. Even more important because oxen was vital to a man's economy in that day. That was his excuse. Then the next one, he said, I bought some land. I got to go take a look at it. Who buys land without looking at it? <laughs> and then the third would come and he didn't even ask to be excused. You know what is it? What he had, he said, I married a wife, I can't come. <laughs> he didn't even ask to be excused. He, he just blamed me. Kind of reminds me of a lot of people. It seemed like more and more to, as time has gone on, uh, don't mind just telling me why they ain't going to be able to come and they're talking to the preacher. And the things I hear are just un incredible. I, I, I can't believe they just told me that. I'm going to tell you what they all are. I got, my, I got my list, and I'm going to publish one day, Lord willing, before I die, of things I don't understand. It's my don't understand list. It grows every day, every week. I just have to have written them down, but I'm, I'm, I might. <laughs> I just don't understand. I can't comprehend it. I think I'm halfway intelligent. Maybe not more than halfway, but something somewhat. I just don't comprehend it, don't understand it. Here's what the Lord said. Now, the Lord went on like this. He says, Whosoever hateth not, listen to this, whosoever hateth not mother or father, wife, husband, sons and daughters, and his own self cannot be my disciple. That word hate there literally means to love less than following him. Or to love more than following him. He says, what man, here's the question. What man go build a tower and not sit down first and count the cost to see whether he's got enough money to build it? Lest after he's laid the foundation and he runs out of money, he can't build the building and people come by and mock him. He said, that just wouldn't be wise. It just wouldn't be wise to start building something without first sitting down and counting how much it's going to cost you. And then, he says, what man would be considering going to war against another king without first determining, can I take 10,000 men and beat him if he has 20,000? If I can't beat him with my 10,000, it says 20,000, I'm going to send ambassadors and see if we can't make peace. That's what you do. 
He says, what man first? And then he says, and whosoever you that do, uh, that do not deny yourself and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now, the price of discipleship, you might think, is really high. But I can tell you this, the rewards of being a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ far outweigh, far outweigh anything that you'll ever get up here in this life. That word first, Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. The Lord Jesus Christ says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and these things shall be added to you. Now here's God's security plan. It far exceeds social security. Trust me, it does. For the Lord taught in this, that no man can serve two masters. He'll love one and hate the other. He'll hold them one and despise the other. He can't serve them both. It's impossible. He didn't say it'd be difficult. He said it's impossible to do it. He said, the Lord, he says, take a look at the, the sparrows out here, how they sow not and reap not or gather not, yet God takes care of them. And, and all the lilies of the field, how they spin not and toil not. God in all, said Solomon, in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But God clothes them. God feeds the sparrows. He clothes the lilies. He said, God knoweth you have need of these things. Take no thought for tomorrow, for tomorrow uh, for sufficient for today is the evil thereof. You know what that expression means? It means you got all you can handle today. Uh, yesterday's history, tomorrow's future, so let's just focus on today. Let's don't get distracted. Let's just focus on today. Then he says, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and these things, these are necessities, not wants, but necessities will be added unto you. That's God's plan of taking care of you. I, I think I, I've tried it along the journey of life, and I found it uh, to be true. It is far better than social, social insecurity. And that's what you have with the government. You have great insecurity. No matter what they call it, it's all insecurity, right? Now, first things first. Now, let's think about the Lord Jesus Christ for a moment. The word firstborn is used extensively in the Old and New Testament. The word firstborn does not always mean born first. That's the first thing I want you to think about. It does not always mean it. And a lot of times it does, but it does not always mean that. The word firstborn literally means rank and dignity and that which is supreme, that which is chief to chiefest and that which is above. And that's the way it's used a lot of times. Now, I was thinking about Mary. As we read about Mary bringing the Lord Jesus Christ in this world, you read in Matthew 1, 25 and also Luke 2, 5. And you will find where it says, And Mary brought forth her firstborn child into the world and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. Firstborn. He literally was her firstborn. She will have more children after this. Jesus will have... You might say half-brothers and sisters because they all had a biological father and Joseph, Jesus didn't. He didn't have a biological father. His father was his father in heaven, you see. But he was the firstborn of Mary. Again, the firstborn doesn't always mean born first. Another example of that is this. David was the eighth son of Jesse. Solomon was the tenth son of David. But you read in Psalms 89 where God is pronouncing blessings upon David and his successors, primarily David and Solomon, and he calls them his firstborn. Well, David was not a firstborn. He was not born first. Solomon was not born first. He was number 10. David was number 8. 
But in the eyes of God, in the sight of God, David slash Solomon was his firstborn. The nation of Israel was God's firstborn. You go to Exodus chapter 4, and you'll find where God is speaking to Moses, instructing him to go back to the land of Egypt, bring his people out of there, and he says, here's what you're going to tell Pharaoh. You're going to tell Pharaoh, Israel is my son, my firstborn. And you're going to let my people go, and if you don't, I will take your firstborn. And that's what exactly happened, wasn't it? It took ten plagues. God sent ten plagues from the land of Egypt. Each one of those plagues was specifically designed to destroy an idol in Egypt. So he comes to number ten. In that culture in that day, the firstborn was highly prized. And by the way, the firstborn wasn't always a son. Sometimes it was a daughter. But the firstborn son was highly prized. He would follow the footsteps of his father. He would get a double portion. He would get a greater inheritance than the remainder of them. That was the culture of that day. He said, I'll take you a firstborn. He comes to the tenth and final plague. God tells Moses, says, you go and you kill a lamb, and you take the blood and you put it on the side post and the lentils, and it says, at midnight I'm going to pass through, and where I see the blood I'll pass over. Where I don't see the blood, the firstborn will be slain. That night at midnight God passed through. And every firstborn of all the Egyptians was slain, no exception. And every firstborn of the Israelites was spared, no exception. What made the difference? The blood. When you see the blood on the side post of the linen, you got a cross. I can assure you the day will come in the final judgment when God will pass over somebody that's protected by the blood. And the blood that you're going to be protected by is not your blood, it's the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. God brought his son, his firstborn, out of the land of Egypt. The Lord Jesus Christ, going back to Mary, says she, he, she wrapped her firstborn son in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger because there's no room for them in the end. He was her firstborn, but then I thought, he was not only her firstborn, he's our firstborn. He's our firstborn. Let's come to the book of Colossians chapter 1. You come to Colossians chapter 1, you start about verse 13. I want to start here just to show you what God has done for us. It says, God has translated us from darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. God has translated us. Verse 14, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. He has translated us. And when something is translated, what is being translated is passive. Just like when the Bible was translated, the Bible didn't translate itself. It was passive in the work. Human beings, men, translators, translate the scripture from the Hebrew into the to English, from the Greek into English. The scriptures were passive in the work of translation. That's exactly what happens in the new birth when God translates you, he delivers you. He's delivered us and translated us from darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. In whom, Christ, we have redemption, even the forgiveness of sins. He's redeemed you and forgiven you. Delivered you, translated you, redeemed you and forgiven you. It gets better. <laughs> he says, who is the image of the invisible God? Now, God is invisible to the natural eyes, but whatever it is, Christ is the image of. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. Now, some people can take that verse, take it out of context here, and take it out of context of the Bible and try to prove that Christ was created. Christ wasn't created. He's the creator. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning, 
was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God. All things were made by Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. Christ was not created, but He's the firstborn. That means rank and dignity. Remember what I told you? Rank, he's above all that. He's the firstborn of every creature. You're a creature here this morning, and Christ is the firstborn of every creature. It says, for by him are all things created. All things are created by him, for him, and in him. And by him all things consist. You know what the word consist means? It means it's kept together. How in the world has the sun, moon, and stars existed for 6,000 years and still have them today? Because <laughs> by all, he, he, he says, by him all things consist. He keeps it together. He created it and put it out there and he keeps it together. Amazing, isn't it? Supernatural work of God is just a, it's incredible. <laughs> By him all things consist. And now he's the head of the body, the church. It says the firstborn from the dead. Now that might seem like an interesting statement to you, or to me it did anyway. Firstborn and death don't seem to go together. Birth and death don't seem to go together. But here's what happened. The Lord Jesus Christ come forth from a virgin womb, which was his tomb for nine months, and he came forth, my friends, and lived in this world. He then was put into a borrowed tomb after he came forth victorious after three days and three nights. He's the firstborn among the dead. He's the firstborn among every creature. Then we come to Romans 8, 29. But whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Yes, he was Mary's firstborn, but thank God I can claim him as a firstborn too. Thank God I can see him as the firstborn among every, every creature. Thank God I see him as being the first begotten of the dead. Thank God I see him as the firstborn among many brethren. Not few brethren, but many brethren. Over whom he foreknew, God foreknew, he also did what? Predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That word firstborn means rank. And whether he did predestinate, then he also called him, he called him, he justified him, he justified him, he also glorified. What shall we say to these things then? Now he's asking us to say something to it. <laughs> so what are you going to say? Amen, maybe? <laughs> What shall we then say to these things? If God, here's what Paul said, if God be for us, who can be against us? No one can successfully overthrow the power of God, the plan of God, the purpose of God, the good pleasure of God. He's a sovereign God of all the universe. And he foreknew you and he chose you and he elected you and he named you and he gave you to his son in a covenant relationship. And Jesus Christ He's the mediator of that covenant. He's everything to the covenant. Moving we did foreknow, he also did predestinate, that is to predetermine, my friends, your destination to be in glory. And he's the firstborn among many brethren. How many, I don't know. If you can count the number of the stars, we can find out. You want to try that? <laughs> we can count the sand of the seashore, we want to try that? If you're down in the ocean sometime or another and you're out there getting baked in the sun and you get a little bored, just get you a, a little pail, not a five-gallon bucket, now just a little pail, maybe just a little plastic glass or something, you know, container, and get you a scoop full of sand in it and start trying to count them all. What about all the sand in the, on the earth? He's the firstborn among every creature. 
Firstborn from the dead. Firstborn among many brethren. And then we come to Hebrews 12 and uh, 22, I believe it is, 23. He says, For you come unto Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the new Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn. You, God's family, the elect of God, which you are part of, obviously, are part of the church of the firstborn. I like that, don't you? To the general assembly. And we're talking about, I believe, when they'll all be assembled together. For 6,000 years, the Lord's people have been separated by time, separated by location, separated uh, by dispensation, etc. But the day will come when you will not be separated anymore. The day will come when all the family of God will assemble themselves together as one family, as one unit, and we'll be with the Lord in glory because we're the church of the firstborn. When I was in school and then heard the announcement come through the speaker, they said, we'll have all the freshmen assembled in the auditorium. If I was a sophomore, I knew not to go. They said, we'll have an assembly of the sophomores. If I was a freshman, I knew not to go. They said, for the juniors, and I was a junior, I knew I was to go, right? But they said, we're going to have a general assembly. That meant everybody went. <laughs> and there's a general assembly going to come, come to pass one day, and we're all going. You don't have to worry about it. He's talking about me. You know. <laughs> you know. He's talking about you. He's talking about all the objects of his love. He's talking about all the, the redeemed of the Lord. We're the church of the firstborn. To the general assembly and church of the firstborn. We come to the first Corinthians chapter 15, which is a chapter of the resurrection. 58 verses in this chapter must be pretty important. Book of him, verse 20, it says. For now Christ has risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. Now the concept of first fruits is very important. You go back and read the book of Leviticus chapter 23 and you find where the Lord gives instructions to Moses and when they come into the land and they sow their crops and harvest time comes that you'd go into the field and you're together just a small bundle you might say of the crop that's under consideration and it's called a sheaf and you bring it and you give it to the priest and then the priest takes it and he weighs it like this before God and if God accepts it, it made the entire crop sure. That's the concept of first fruits. For now Christ is risen and become the first fruits of them that slept. For by man came death, but by Jesus Christ came life. For man came death, by man came the resurrection of the, de of the dead. He said, but every man now in his own order. Now notice this. First things first. Remember that. First things first. Every man in his own order. Christ the first fruits. After those are his at his coming. When Christ arose from the grave, it was like that priest. Now Christ is our great high priest, is he not? When he arose from the grave, it's just like he's standing there and waving his glorified body before the Father in heaven. And the Father sees it and he accepts the offering it made the entire harvest sure. Your resurrection is just as sure as the resurrection of Jesus. He's the first fruits. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the first. Be, uh, he's the firstborn. He's the first begotten. He's the first fruits. And over here in Revelation chapter twenty, verse five, it says, "Blessed and holy is he that have part in the first resurrection." 
on which the second death hath no power. The resurrection of the Lord was how, how was it different than the resurrection of those uh, in the Old Testament day in the, in the ministries of Elijah and Elisha? In those ministries in the Old Testament, God used them to raise somebody from the dead. The widow woman's son was raised from the dead. How is that resurrection different than the resurrection of Jesus? When the Lord Jesus Christ raised Lazarus from the dead, when he raised the uh, widow woman's son from the dead, when he raised the daughter of Jairus from the dead, how is that resurrection different than the resurrection of Jesus? Those resurrections, my friends, of those bodies, those, those individuals that was raised back from the dead, they had to die again. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is the resurrection of a man who will never die again. Revelation 1.18, I'm he that liveth, was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Also, another vital difference is they didn't resurrect their own selves from the dead, but the Lord Jesus Christ did. No man resurrected Jesus Christ from the dead. He resurrected his own body from the grave, from, from death itself. And therefore, he reigns as Lord of lords and King of kings over all things, including death and the grave itself. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. There is a second death coming. First death, second death, first resurrection, second resurrection. For those who have part that is represented in the first resurrection, the second death hath no power. The second death is the lake of fire of which the devil, his angels, the beast, and the false prophet, that old devil, Satan, the dragon, the old serpent, he's cast into that where they shall be tormented forever and forever and forever and has no power of you because you have part in the first resurrection. When Jesus told Lazarus, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Believest thou this? Mary believed, Martha believed. So upon the first day of the week, the disciples met. On the first day of the week, in, in, in observation, in celebration, in recognition of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. What day of the week did he, did he rise? He rose the first day of the week. This man who's the firstborn, who's first fruit, who's the first begotten, he rose on the first day of the week. And then seven days later, he makes his appearance to those disciples behind closed doors. And what day of the week was? It was the first day of the week. So the Lord gives instructions about honoring him with our substance. On 1 Corinthians 16, 1, Paul says, If I have given an order to the church of Galatia, even so do I unto you upon the first day of the week. Let every one of you lay aside in stores. God has so prospered him. Be no gatherings when I come. What day of the week is that? It's the first day of the week. We assemble on the first day of the week. We lay aside on the first day of the week. We meet and honor the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ on the first day of the week. He's the first fruits. He's the first begotten. He's the firstborn from the dead. And so when I think about this text in 1 John 4, 19, it took on actually a new light for me, a simple little text I've quoted a thousand times probably in my 50 years of preaching. We love him because he first loved us. First things first. Let's put the Lord first, best of our ability. Let's put him first. Let's consider him before we consider ourselves. Go read 1 John. Read those 23 worlds. <laughs> read those 33 expressions. 
of the love of God. Those two go together. God bless you for your, your support, your prayers, your encouragement, and all that you mean to me. And I can say this from the depths of my heart. Each one of you mean all the world to me. I love you for Christ's sake.